What if you knew then what you know now? Think about that question for a minute. What if you knew then what you know now? And when is then? Well, it can be any time in the past where your wisdom now would have come in handy. I'm sure we have some of those moments. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh man, hindsight's 2020, right? When I started out in youth ministry, I started devouring every youth ministry book I could get. Your first two years in youth ministry, um, how to grow a youth ministry. But then there was this one book that stood out and it said, what I wish I knew when I started in youth ministry. And it was so funny because I'm reading through these things and it was just all disaster stories that these youth pastors had done with their kids. And you're thinking, how would anyone be dumb enough to actually do those things? But yet, I managed to do some of those mistakes on my own, even after reading the book. Uh, my very first youth event was taking a, great, a group of grade seven and eight boys up a 3,000-foot cliff in Squamish, BC, and they're all running to the edge like, woohoo! And I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I thinking? But I didn't really realize that till I got to the top. <laughs> and then there's the other time where I picked up a stranded hitchhiker on the side of the road with a car full of youth, and they're all like in the back seat with this stranger, and I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> And that's just to name a couple of, I'm sure I have many more, and I'm sure Amanda could share many more too. But think about this. Think about 1980. Wouldn't it be helpful knowing what we know now about a little upstart tech company in Silicon Valley by the name of Apple Computers? Imagine if we knew then what we know now, that if we invested $5,000 in 1980, it would be somewhere north of $7 million today. And that's without all the other dividends and payouts. And man, only if we knew then what we know now. Or how about this? How would we eat differently if we knew then what our cardiologist is telling us today? Maybe Big Macs and Cokes, supersized, wouldn't have been part of the five food groups for us. If only we had today's wisdom then. Do you think we would choose differently? What about when you look at pictures today? Like, when I look at pictures today, some of the horror stories that I think of, and I didn't want to even put them up on the slides, is grade nine. Um, do, do you know the show Boy Meets World? Is Eric the older brother? It, Eric, I liked his hairstyle, parted in the middle, and it was long, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna do that, copy that. Well, my hair goes wavy and curly, and it's parted in the middle and short, and it just looks terrible. And then I was trying to find my identity, too, and I'm like, okay, one day I'm wearing like baggy pants with stripes down the side, and then the next week I'm in khakis and a turtleneck and big sweater, and I'm just trying to figure out who I am. But man, if I only knew then what I know now, to not even try some of those things. As they say, hindsight is 2020. But today we're going to see a story that Jesus tells that when you see it through God's word, he's able to make the future just as clear as the past. That's the power of scripture. That's the power of God's word. And Jesus is going to bring this alive to us. And in week one of this series that we've been going through, Exponential, I shared this thought. I said, one of the reasons why so many of us miss the exponential life is because we think too small. We're thinking addition, but God's thinking multiplication. So 
if you're writing notes down, I want you to write down this thought to why so many of us also miss the exponential life that God has for us. And it's because we are consumed by the temporary rather than focused on the eternal. That's one of the reasons why we miss the exponential life that God has for us now, because we are consumed by the temporary rather than focused on the eternal. We're so caught up with the things of this world that we're missing the stuff that matters in heaven. And so Paul spoke to this, to the church in Colossae, saying in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, since then you have been raised with Christ, set, set your hearts, where? On things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And so there's a story or a parable that Jesus tells to illustrate why an eternal-focused life is absolutely critical for you experiencing the life that God created you to live. It's found in Matthew chapter 25. So I'm going to invite you to turn there in your Bibles. There's some in the, the seats in front of you. And the reason I'm going to do that is because I'm going to kind of walk through it and paraphrase it a bit. I'll have some of the scriptures on the slides. But we're going to kind of be jumping in and out of it. But we're going to look at a few key thoughts from the parable of the talents. So Matthew 25, the story goes like this. The master's about to leave on a journey. He calls three of his servants together and he gives them his property. To one, he entrusts five talents. To one, he entrusts two. To another, he entrusts one. And you might ask, well, what's a talent? Well, the Greek word for talent is the same word that we derive our English word talent. It's gifts, skills, abilities. But it's also, though, in this context, an Egyptian form of currency. So if you're wondering, well, is it gifts, talents, abilities, time, resources, money? The answer is just yes. It's all of those things. It's everything the master entrusts to us. And so he gave each according to their ability, and then he left. After a while, he comes back to settle accounts with them. And the one who got five, the one who had the most talents, said, Master, I doubled it. You gave me five, and I got five more. And the master's overjoyed, well done, so proud of you, high five, chest bump, so on. You did great. You were faithful with a little. Now I'm going to give you even more. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had two, exact same conversation. So proud of you. Enter into the joy of your master. But the one who only got one, this is where the story changes. The Bible says in the story Jesus was telling that it was out of fear that he did nothing with it. He didn't invest it. He didn't try to increase it. He just hid it. And when the master came, he gave back what belonged to the master. But listen to the powerful language that the master responds to the one who had one talent. He says, you wicked and lazy servant. Whew. Feel that for just a moment, because that's heavy. This is how much stewardship matters to God. So the master took one talent, and he gave it to the one who had ten. Now, the biggest aha moment for me doesn't actually happen in the parable, but the biggest aha for me is the reason for which Jesus was even telling this story. You see, many of us have heard this story before, but you might not be aware of why Jesus was telling the story. And it happens in verse 1 of Matthew 25. Jesus says this, The kingdom of heaven will be like 
dot, dot, dot. And then he goes on to share the parable of the talents. So remember the question we started out with, what if we knew then what we know now? What Jesus is doing here is he's giving you insider information about how your life on earth exponentially impacts eternity. How you live now, the decisions you make now have an eternal impact. He's giving you the blueprint to how the economy of heaven works. So we have to pay attention to a couple key ideas in the story that Jesus is telling. So again, if you're taking notes, make sure to remember a few of these thoughts. How do we live with an eternal focus based on this story that Jesus told? First thing we have to understand and accept is that God owns everything. God owns everything. Now, our natural instinct is, but, but I've worked so hard for this. I've earned this. I've saved for this. I deserve this. That's human nature. But in verse 14, the Bible says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them whose property? His property. We've been entrusted with God's property. It's in our DNA. It was always the property of the master, even when it was in the servant's hands. God owns everything. And this mindset is more important to your life than most of you realize because God created you to be like him. He created you to be open-handed, to be givers, to be generous with everything that he's entrusted you. But here's the problem. If you actually believe the lie that what you have is yours to own, it's nearly impossible to let go of because you have worked so hard and you're the one that made it happen because that's what we think. But the moment you say, wait a second, everything belongs to God, and I'm a steward, not an owner, well, then living a life of open-handedness becomes that much easier. I believe this is the reason God calls us to honor him with a tithe. I'm sure you've heard that. If you've been around the church at any time, you've heard the tithe, the, the first 10% of our income, of our resources. Well, why is that such a big deal? Well, because it forces us to change the way that we think. If you're taking notes again, I want you to write down a thought about the tithe. And for some of you, this might be the aha takeaway today. The tithe is a declaration of God's ownership. The tithe, every time you honor God with the first, you are declaring his ownership, that yes, God owns everything. And again, that's why it's so important to just give the first 10%. Because when we kind of put everything else before God, and it's like, okay, I'll do this, 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 and then we get down, usually it's just scraps left, and we're not really believing that God owns everything. Leviticus 27 verse 30 says, one-tenth, the tithe, the mahaseer in Hebrew, of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. Every time we get paid, we have the opportunity to remind ourselves that God, everything that I have is yours and I honor you with it. And I've shared before that I've struggled with this throughout my life. Well, do I give 10% off my gross? Do I give 10% off my net? 
And my dad, he just always says, well, why does the government take the, the taxes off your, your gross? And I'm like, oh, man. And he's like, and God's only getting your net? And let the Holy Spirit convict you how that is. But I also grew up with a very generous dad. Uh, he has his own business. And when I grew up and got my license, I didn't have to pay car insurance because he had fleet insurance. I didn't have to pay gas because they had company gas cards. And, and it's interesting now to look back and realize how good I had it. But that's how I learned how to drive standard. My buddy John had a standard car, and I would say, John, I'll fill up your car with gas if you let me, if you teach me how to drive this. And he's like, sure. But knowing it was my dad's made it much easier for me to be open-handed. Now, if I'm like, oh man, I need to fill up someone's tank with gas, that's a different story. <laughs> but it's the same principle. Like Everything we have is God's. I've struggled with the materialistic desires, the struggle of loving stuff and finding joy in things. But a verse that changed my life is Matthew 6:33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And God has provided for me in some pretty crazy ways. And on our wedding day, Amanda and I had everyone sing the song, Be Thou My Vision. And we actually have a sign that hangs in our house, painted by Krista Kerr, who painted that, that uh, hymn, the Be Thou My Vision. And those words have changed us because God owns everything. It's His. And when I look at Amanda, I see one of the most generous people I know. And she might laugh at that because... Well, we know ourselves best, but, <laughs> but the reason I see her as so generous is because she doesn't believe she owns her time. She, she sees it as a gift from God for hers to steward. So then she pours into women. She pours into hurting people. The story of God bringing us together in marriage, that story isn't just ours to keep. It's God's story of redemption, and it's for us to steward. And that's where even this verse, Matthew 6, comes from. Because I had made these commitments to God, saying, I'm going to give up all these things and dating, and then I meet Amanda, and I'm like, okay, God, what are you doing? I just said I'd give this up. But Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom. I made those commitments because I was seeking first God's kingdom. And since then, he has just continued to provide in crazy, crazy ways. Everything is God's for us to steward. And I was kind of waiting for this moment of devastation to hit when I first decided to sell everything. I was living here in Hamilton. I had my own place, had the car, had the motorbike, had everything almost that I had wanted. But then God brought me to this point where he's like, are you going to follow me? And if you are, I want you to sell it all. And I want you to move out to BC and go into ministry. I'm like, what? But I did. And I kept waiting for this moment of devastation to kind of hit me like, oh man, I gave this all up. Even when I was leaving Ontario, I had some friends saying, you're giving up everything your family owns here and the family company. And I'm like, yeah because God has called me to do this. And the moment of devastation I was waiting for, it never came, and it still hasn't come. And the reason why is because none of it was mine to begin with. I own nothing. All the stuff that I had slowly collected, I just simply let go of. And now the stuff that has replaced all that stuff I got rid of, well, it's not mine either. It's all God's, and it's for us to steward. And so one of the questions that you really have to wrestle with is, how would your life change knowing that everything belongs to God?
How would you live differently knowing this truth? That God owns everything. It's all His. And Jesus, remember, He's helping us and giving us insight about how our life on earth exponentially impacts heaven. And it starts with the fact that God owns everything. And secondly, this one's going to sting a little bit, but we will give an account. You will give an account to God. An account for what? For everything you did with what he entrusted to you. Verse 19, the story goes, the master, after a while, came back to those servants, and what did he do? He settled accounts with them. This is what I gave you. What have you done with it? And I don't know about you, but it makes me think of being a kid and your parents sit you down and they ask, is there anything you need to tell me? It's like, oh boy, I'm like, it's a lose-lose situation, like unwinnable. You're like, okay, they know something, but what is it that they know? Like the time I bought feeder mice, there used to be a pet store on Lime Ridge Mall and I bought feeder mice that you give to snakes to put in the girls' sleeping bags at snow camp one year thought it was the best thing. But then one got out in the van that when we were driving up and ultimately died in my dad's van and stunk it up to high heavens. So I'm like, is that what my dad's trying to get at? Or is he talking about something else? Yeah. I, I'm just thinking all these stories that I've had growing up thinking like, these are pretty crazy. They're, it's just sermon material now. <laughs> Oftentimes, this is what we think when we hear that we have to give an account before God sitting there, sweating our tails off, being like, oh my goodness, like, what, what, like what's he going to hold against me? But I don't believe this is the, the account that Jesus is talking about. This is really, really, really important to understand because you're probably thinking that that doesn't really jive with this whole idea of grace that we're always talking about. Like, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus endured the judgment on my behalf? A hundred percent, it absolutely does. And doesn't the Bible say that I'm saved by grace through faith and it's not a result of my works? 100% yes. Doesn't the Bible say there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? You are absolutely right. But you will stand before God and give an account for how he stewarded what he gave you. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Remember, we will all. Can everyone say all? All. Remember, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For the scriptures say, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bend to me and every tongue will declare allegiance, praise to God. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. And guess what? Paul's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to the Christians, the Jesus followers who are living in Rome. This is not the judgment where God separates those who believed and followed Jesus from those who rejected him. That's one judgment. This is not that one. The word judgment seat of God comes from the Greek word bema. So let's actually say that together, bema, bema. That's the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ. And this word bema, its origin is shared with the courts, but it's also shared with the beginning of the Athenian games where we get our modern day Olympics from. And in that day, athletes would run their race, they would compete in various events, and then at the end of the race, they would stand on the podium, on the bema, 
where wreaths were placed on their heads for running the race well and winning. But here's the problem. We struggle with this idea that I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of God because we usually think of this, the standing before the judge, he's throwing down the gavel, he's declaring you guilty, you've made a mess of things. But this is not the Bema seat of Christ. I believe a better picture of what the, the, that moment will look like standing before the Bema seat of Christ is this, standing on the podium before God with Jesus cheering you on. Come on, you've got this. I've given you so much. Run with your whole heart. Don't give up. Don't take a break. Keep stewarding everything that I've given you. He's sitting on the edge of his throne and he's scheming and dreaming and planning for how he will reward you with something that will never fade. This is the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not something to be feared. It's going to be the greatest party in the cosmos. Well done. And honestly, how would you live differently if you believed that to be true rather than that? This you're kind of shaking before. And this, you're there as he's recognizing, well done, good and faithful servant. How would you live differently if you believe that to be true? If you knew you were going to stand before God and give an account for what you did with what he gave you. You see, when we wrestle with this idea that God owns everything, that we'll give an account, and that God is longing to eternally reward us for how we stewarded what he gave us now, it becomes so obvious that God cares that we are faithful stewards and that we live our lives as faithful stewards. That's what this parable is all about. And I know some of you are thinking like, yes, I want that. I want to do that. I want to stand on the podium before God, and I want to live a life that matters in eternity and that impacts someone else's eternity. So the question becomes how? What can I do differently to make that happen? And here it is. To become a faithful steward, we must see ourselves as kingdom investors rather than earthly spenders. We have to change the lens through which we look at life. We are kingdom investors, not earthly spenders. We all know what it means to spend, right? Most of us are probably pretty good at it, but spending is nothing more than trading. You're, you're giving this in exchange for that, but there's no net add. But investing, now that's different. To invest is to devote something with the expectation of an exponential return. It's a whole different mindset. So if we're going to see ourselves not as earthly spenders, but as kingdom investors, that means that every second of every day, you have a choice to spend your life or to invest your life. For example, you could spend a little time watching Netflix. And what do you get out of it? Well, you get to veg out a little, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what if you took that same amount of time and mentored someone else who's going through something that you've been through? Now that's an investment that makes a difference here and now and matters in heaven. When we connect people with Christ, the investment that the, the kids camp team is making to invest now is going to make an eternal impact in the lives of them and the kids that we're going to minister to this week. 
And I believe that as we invest now, it's actually going to be multiplied back to us. There will be an exponential return. We've kind of been talking about that with the seed of faith. It takes time, but there will be this exponential return. And parents, how many of you try and spend energy trying to control your kid's behavior? It's like, don't do that, do this. And it's just like, why don't they ever listen to me? And sometimes it's necessary. It's not a bad use of time. But what if we took that energy and invested it on our knees, just praying heaven down on our kids and that they would know Jesus? That is an investment that will change their eternity and ours. It's the same energy, different mindset. So church, when you see yourself as spiritual investors, it changes you and it has an exponential return both now and for eternity. So who here has foreign currency kicking around their house from like when you've traveled abroad? Uh, not just American, but like maybe some other, like we all have some American. <laughs> We're close enough. But I remember my first time going to Mexico was grade seven. And I was so excited to get pesos because especially too, like you get so many of them. I think like a hundred dollars gives you like over a thousand pesos, like 1200 or something. And I'm like, whoa, like as a grade seven kid, you just feel like loaded. But then after the trip, you come back home and you kind of, you still want to keep some of them, but then they kind of become useless and worthless. No one takes pesos here. And if you don't have enough pesos, it's not even worth converting back into Canadian dollars. And to this day, I still have some of those pesos that aren't really worth anything here, nothing. They were worth something at the place I visited for a brief time, but now where we live, where my home is, they're not of any value. And it makes me think, how many of us one day in heaven will discover that we spent a lifetime obsessing about accumulating, buying, and all these things is just worthless. It has no value. The 4K TV, it's awesome. And we want to get bigger and better, but it's worthless. In heaven, the Bible says that you will see colors that the human eye can't even see. And the TV that we once thought was the be-all and end-all, it's laughable. <laughs> or the shoes or the purse or the car that makes you kind of feel like you're something. Well, in heaven, your identity is not going to be found in what you carried or what you wore on your feet, or what you were driving, but the fact that you are a son or daughter of the king, that's where your identity flows out of. The other stuff, it doesn't matter. It has no value. The pension and the retirement plan that you worked so hard to build, not saying there's no wisdom in it. There is. But let's be honest, it doesn't roll over into heaven. It'd be great if it did, but there's no rollover. So what do we do? The only reasonable response to live a life holding, is to live a life holding nothing back, because we know now how it's going to affect us then. Jesus has told us how a life of faithful stewardship will impact you now and forevermore. That's what he's trying to get across. He's saying, I'm telling you what you need to know now so you don't look back and say, man, I wish I knew that back then. How could there be any other reasonable response than living a life of open-handedness God, everything I have belongs to you. And let me just encourage you too. I believe that you are all 10 talent people. <laughs> and I'm not just saying that. I say this because you were put 
in the time and place where there is more opportunity to reach people for Jesus than any other generation that's come before us. Like, our whole alliance denomination began as this gospel missionary movement to reach the least reached people groups around the world. The, the world. <laughs> and I just think nowadays, like, we're able to partner with Mike and Nikki in Senegal and actually communicate and see each other. Like, technology has made the world smaller and made the world more accessible. We are part of a movement of God that is exponential. And I believe that we are planted in a 10-talent community of faith where God has given us and entrusted us with so much, but He's waiting to see what we're going to do with it. Because the sobering reality is to whom much is given, much will be expected. But please hear me on this. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by the cross of Jesus and the power of an empty tomb, period. But your life and your stewardship will impact eternity. Not even just for you, but for people who will be there because of your investment, because you gave, because you took the time to disciple, because you took the time to pray for them. If you will, just close your eyes for a moment, and I just want you to try and imagine what it will be like then in the presence of God and glory to stand on the Bema seat of Christ, this podium, and to be fully known and to know there's no more sin, there's no more brokenness, there's no more cancer, there's no more pain, there's no more tears. There's just perfect love and perfection in the presence of God. Can you see it? And God is sitting at the edge of his throne cheering you on. You've got this. I've given you gifts and talents and skills and resources, and it matters to me how you steward it. So don't quit running. Keep going. You've got this. And knowing what we will experience then, how is that going to affect what we do today? You can open your eyes, but let's apply that future reality to how we live today and how we live tomorrow and next week and how we live next month. And then one day, we will stand before the Master, just like Jesus' story told to the servants. In Matthew 25, verse 21, his Master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your Master. Friends, do not fear, but be encouraged to use your God-given talents because one day God will look you in the eye and he is longing to tell you, well done, my good and faithful child. You did such a good job with what I gave you in a time and place where I planted you, the church that I plugged you into, the family that you were born into, the neighborhood that you stewarded. You did good. I'm so proud of you. You were faithful with a little and now I'm placing you over much. Come, enter into the joy of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us and entrusting us with more than we deserve. Help us to steward it carefully and faithfully. In this moment, help us to be honest with ourselves and with you about where we're at in all of this. Some of you might be feeling like there's a part of your life that 
You aren't investing, you're simply spending. It's all about things that matter here, but not what will matter there. And if God's Spirit is speaking to you or nudging you in this area of your life, simply tell Him, I'm not going to spend anymore. I'm choosing to invest my life into something that's going to matter in heaven and in someone else's life. God, I thank you so much for a church that wants desperately for their lives to have meaning in eternity in the life and in the lives of others. God, help us see that all that you've given us are tools to grow heaven, to live life to the fullest here and now and forevermore. And if you're listening to this message in your life right now, maybe you just feel like you aren't worth much. Maybe you, you feel like you're that one, one talent person. Please know that the greatest investment ever made was the investment of the life of Jesus. Scripture says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured Calvary's cross. What was that joy? You were that joy. So that you would know how loved and valuable and worthy you truly are. And so that you would once and for all surrender your life to Jesus, receive his freedom from sin and a new identity in him. You are not a failure. You are a child of the Most High God. You are forgiven of every sin you have ever committed, not because you earned it, but because of his grace. So if that's you right now, just simply confess, God, I've messed up. I've blown it. I'm asking you for forgiveness, and I'm choosing to repent, to turn away from that life. God, I'm giving you my entire life, and I promise you, in that moment of faith, your sin is forgiven and you become a new person. If I could just invite everyone to pray this with me, whether aloud or in your heart, just, Father, we need you. Save us. Jesus, we believe that you died to pay for our sins. You rose from the grave to bring new life. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit so that we can serve you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.